came across a website the other day called SETI. S-E-T-I. That stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. There, there are some people who look at this universe as we understand it and say it is so huge that it doesn't make any sense that we would be the only people in it. I mean, here we are in one tiny little speck of a planet in the midst of the sheer immensity of the universe. There's no way, they say, that we can be the only people here. So they want to find these people. Now, how do you go about finding these extraterrestrial people? Well, the way they've gone about it is to use the huge radio telescopes and to beam them on certain stars, and they're listening for radio signals, abnormal radio signals, microwave radio signals. And they say if we pick up an abnormal radio signal, that will indicate that they are out there somewhere. They say that if we do pick up an abnormal radio signal, we will not understand it, but at least we'll know we have a message. We don't want to know what the message is. We want to know where it's come from. But this will encourage us to build bigger telescopes. So they are really a long way from coming up with anything right now. But I was very interested to know about these people. Now, I have some good news for you. We have had a visitation from outer space. It happened 2,000 years ago. There was nothing ambiguous about the message of this visitor from outer space. He made it abundantly clear where he'd come from, why he'd come, what his message was, and the relevance of it to us today. And it is summarized in a statement that comes in the reading from John's Gospel, chapter 1. It is summarized in this very simple little statement. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. So the good news is we have had a visitation from outer space. He came with an unambiguous message. It is highly relevant to us today and it is incumbent upon us to tune in to what he had to say. I want to explore this statement, the word became flesh, and I'll tell you why. Because this expression of the word became flesh is the most profound yet succinct explanation of Christmas that I've come across. And I'm very interested in us having a profound yet succinct statement of Christmas because it is my conviction that our culture at the present time has developed trivialization into an art form. It, I mean, it's amazing what we do with the great markers of our culture. Take Easter. Easter is about bunnies now. Now, please don't misunderstand me. You bunny lovers, I'm, I'm not opposed to bunnies at all. I just don't like... Easter degenerating into a bunny hopping around. When I was a kid, we used to breed rabbits back home. It was in the Second World War, and we bred them to eat. And then we loved them so much, we couldn't eat them. 
so it was a bit of a futile exercise. <laughs> There's Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It, we were introduced to the idea of a, a Thanksgiving day when, when we came to America. We don't have one in England. I mean, we didn't have pilgrims in England who were thankful that they'd arrived in England. The only Thanksgiving we could think of in England was thanking God the pilgrims had left. But that, <laughs> that didn't seem to be particularly appropriate either. But the, the problem with, with Thanksgiving is that thank, Thanksgiving now is Turkey Day. Now, now please mis- don't misunderstand me. I'm very partial to Turkey, particularly cooked. <laughs> but, but, but to allow it all to degenerate into just Turkey Day... And Bunny Day and Christmas. Christmas has been hijacked by Santa Claus. Santa Claus, of course, as somebody reminded me last night, comes from St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Myra. He was a wonderful guy. He was a great guy and totally unrecognizable from what he's become in Santa Claus. We are masters of trivialization. So what I want to try to do today is to try to de-trivialize Christmas. That's all. Try to de-trivialize Christmas and look at this statement at the beginning of John's Gospel. The Word became flesh and see what it means and see what possible relevance it has to our lives. Now, when, when John says the Word became flesh, he has already given a very, very fascinating description of this thing called the Word. And it starts out like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you you will agree with me that every one of the words in that sentence are very, very easy to understand. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No, no words that need uh, any great help, uh, that we, we require any great help to understand there. And yet the utter profundity of what he is saying is such as we can never plummet ourselves. When John talked about the word, this was a masterstroke of communication. John was writing in the Middle East towards the end of the first century of the Christian era. When he was writing, he was living and writing to a very cosmopolitan culture. We, we call it now, nowadays a pluralist society. A pluralist society means you have a society in which a lot of widely divergent cultures live in very close proximity to each other. We live in a pluralist society in America now. This was the case in the first century. Now, there were many, many different groups, but probably the dominant groups at that time were those who belonged to the Greco-Roman culture. That is, they were the Greeks and the Romans who had been greatly influenced by the Greeks and the Jews, the Hebrews. They were living in close proximity to each other, and yet they came from widely different backgrounds, and and yet there was one very interesting thing about them. The, the, The Greeks and the Hebrews both talked a lot about the word. Actually, the word that they used was logos, which is the Greek word for word. They all talked about the logos. The Greeks did, the Hellenized Romans did, 
the Jews did. And incidentally, the, the idea of the Logos was also common at different times among the Egyptians, among the Assyrians, among the Babylonians. This was one of those the, the, those hot button terms that you could throw into a conversation and widely divergent people would immediately latch onto it and be interested in it, even though they were coming from every point on the compass. I was trying to think of a, a similar word for today. How about spirituality? You could go into Starbucks, sit down, get a cup of coffee, and say something about spirituality, and you can stay for the rest of the morning in Starbucks because everybody in Starbucks would have some input on spirituality. Or the word evolution. Throw evolution into a conversation on the college campus and immediately you'll get people who will get in on the act. And they're coming from every point on the campus, but there's a common interest in it. And when John uses the term, the word, or the logos, that is what he is doing. Now, what he's going to do is take a term with which they're familiar and he's going to invest it with meaning far beyond anything that they understand up to that present time. Well, what did the Greeks understand by the logos, the word? Well, let me explain it to you this way. This may be a great surprise to some of you, but actually at this moment of time, I have some thoughts in my head. Now then, I would like to convey the thoughts in my head to your head. This is an enormous task because there, there are hundreds of you here, thousands of you here, and listening on radio, there are many, many, many more people as well. And so now we have to try a very, very difficult experiment. I want to convey the thought in my head to your head. I will require you to concentrate. Those of you who are in the auditorium here, look at the end of my nose. Those of you who listen on radio, look fixedly at your radio unless you're driving your car. Now, now, concentrate on the end of my nose. And I'm going to concentrate, and I'm going to get this thought in my head into your head. Are you ready? I probably missed the balcony. Did you get it? Did you get the thought? Oh dear. Well, that was unsuccessful. Well, actually, the thought that was going through my head while I was doing this is a very stupid thing to do. But anyway, <laughs> that, that was the thought that was going through my head. However, the, the point I want to get across to you is this that if I want to get a thought from my head to your head, probably one of the best ways of doing it is, is by the medium of a word. Now, if I can get a word that equates to the thought in my head, and I can use a word that equates to, that your understanding of that word equates to my understanding of that word, then through the medium of a word, I can communicate a hidden thought to you. The word. The logos. And so the fundamental idea of the logos was this, that the logos is that which communicates reality. That which communicates reality. Now the Greeks, they were thinking in terms of reality. They were thinking in terms of reality being communicated to them. The Hebrews, they were interested in reality. They were interested in reality being communicated to them. But now then, when you think in terms of the word being the means of communicating reality, that presupposes that there is a rational reality behind all things. And so the Logos not only has the idea of communicating a rational reality, 
but it also has the idea that this is the essence of the reality behind all things. Now, the Greeks for centuries have been pondering their universe. They've been looking at it and they've been saying, this is a wonderful universe. They didn't call it a universe. Didn't have that term in those days. They called, talked about the heavens and the earth. But they looked at it. They said, it's wonderful. There has to be something behind it. And the thing that was behind it, they called a rational idea that was being communicated in the universe itself. In other words, the universe was an extension of this rational idea. And as you looked at the universe, you could get some idea of the rational idea behind it all. Logos. So now you have the idea of a rational idea behind all things being communicated through that which has been created. In much the same way that an artist paints a picture and they will communicate a message to you in the picture. Then they said, aha, well, if we have something that has created a universe and is expressing himself or itself in the creation of this universe, this universe needs to be governed. And so logos now becomes not only a rational idea, and a creative force, but it also becomes a governing dynamic. And the logos is the rational idea behind all things, the creative force that brought all things into being, like you and me, and the governing dynamic of all things. This was as far as the Greek philosophers had got. But they believed fervently in the logos. John says, let me tell you about the logos. Let me fill in the blanks for you. There's some big holes in your understanding here. You've got some very good ideas. You're not wrong in many, many ways about this thing, but you need to go very, very much further than you've got. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Greeks pick up their ears. They want to know what he has to say. But what about the Hebrews? What about the Jews? Well, the Jews, of course, were very different. They didn't believe in a pantheon of gods who were simply an extension of human beings who did all the kind of rotten things that human beings did. And therefore, the the Greeks didn't need to worry too much about their gods because the gods were as bad as they were. Hebrews, they believed, they were monotheists. They believed in Jehovah. Now, they had their scriptures. And the beginning of their scriptures went like this. In the beginning... Does that ring a bell with the beginning of John's gospel? Exactly the same. In the beginning. How do the scriptures begin for the Hebrews? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No introduction, no preamble, no apology. That's where it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then he goes into a little more detail. This is how he describes it. Now remember, this is not a scientific document written by a scientist, which is good, because if it had been a scientific document written by a scientist 4,000 years ago, it would have been 4,000 years out of date. And we'd all have laughed at this. That's ridiculous. So it wasn't written as a scientific document. It was written in a different genre, so so the basic thrust of it would be there and would stand for all time. Now listen to this. Listen to this. Genesis says, and the Lord said, let there be light. And there was. The Lord said it, and it happened. When he said it, it was a word. And the word made it happen. Creative force in the word. See, not dissimilar to what the Greeks were saying, although coming from a very different point of view. The Hebrews understood there was Jehovah, And it was the word of the Lord. 
The writer to the epistle to the Hebrews puts it this way, by faith we understand that the heavens and earth were created by the Word of God. Now, this is something that's foreign to our thinking, but we've got to get hold of the idea that as far as the Hebrews were concerned, they believed in Jehovah, one God, who in some way had something called the Word that became the creative energy of his activity. The Word. You remember that the, the prophets, they would say, hear the Word of the Lord. They, they seem to preface whatever they were saying with, hear the word of the Lord. But before that, it says, and the word of the Lord came to them. The word of the Lord came to them. Now, the, the, actually, the, the expression is not the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord happened to them. The word of the Lord happened to them. There's a dynamic force in it. And the idea that they had in the word was this, that it was not only the creative dynamic behind all things, but it also was a power that could operate in a person's life and happen to them and change them. It happened to them and changed them. This was the dynamic. This was the powerful activity of the word. And then, of course, you've got the wonderful expression of the prophet Isaiah. Remember what the Lord says to Isaiah? He said, my word, my word will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish and achieve all that I intended. Why? Because the word isn't just a lot of print on a white page. It isn't just a lot of ideas. The word in Hebrew thought is something that happens. It is something that transforms. It is something that changes. It is something that achieves something. The word. There's a lovely psalm, a thanksgiving psalm, Psalm 107. Psalm 107 starts out by describing some people who got themselves in a real mess. And then the Lord delivers them. And so it says, so we give thanks to the Lord. It's a great Thanksgiving psalm. If you didn't have one for Thanksgiving, you can read it retroactively. Then the, then the second section talks about another group who got themselves in another mess. And the Lord delivers them and they give thanks to the Lord. Third group who got in a mess and the Lord delivers them and they give thanks to the Lord. But at the end of the third group, this is what it says. He delivered them by the power of the word of his mouth. He delivered them by the power of the word of his mouth. What does that mean? It means that the word happened to them. It was a transforming word. It was a dynamic thing. It was something that God uses in order that he might make himself known, himself felt, himself experienced in the world. So John there's a master stroke here. He says, I want to reach the Greeks and I want to reach the Romans and I want to reach the Jews. I want to get across to them something that is absolutely universal. And how can I do that? He says, I know. I tell you what I'll do. They're all talking about the Logos. I'll talk about the Logos. I'll talk about the Word. And this is what I'll tell them. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Jews said, what did he say? 
And the Greek said, what did he say? What is this crazy man telling us? And this crazy man is telling them that there is a word of God. But he said, I've got to tell you a whole lot more about him than you've ever thought of. In all your speculation, in all your thinking, in all your ruminations, you haven't even begun to grasp the immensity of the word. Let me tell you about it. So much then for the unique identity of the word. Now, the second thing that comes out of this statement is what I call the eternal existence of the word. Notice what he says. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Now, you'll notice in verse 14 it said, and the word became flesh. Now, I'm not splitting hairs here, but there are two different words that are set in contrast to each other. In the beginning was, but then the word became. When it says, in the beginning the word was, it means whenever the beginning happened, whatever the beginning was, the word already existed. But then subsequently, the word became something that it hadn't already been. That was when the word became flesh. So this is what he's saying. The word, if you understand it, you need to understand this. The word in the beginning was eternally existent. The word in the beginning was eternally existent. Beginning of what? Well, the beginning of everything. Well, what's that? that? That question has fascinated people for a long, long time. Let me, let me tell you about some of these people. There was Immanuel Kant. You remember Immanuel Kant? Somebody said, no, I don't remember who he played for. Was it the Vikings or, or the Packers? No, Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher in the 18th century. He, his father was a pietistic minister. So he grew up in a believing family. So it wasn't a surprise that Immanuel Kant grew up believing in an infinite God. That's a good place to start. He believed in an infinite God. But unfortunately for young Immanuel, he got a little bit confused after that. And he said this, because God is infinite, he is unknowable. And his reasoning was very simple. The finite cannot grasp the infinite. Or if you want in simple terms, you can't get a bucket full in a thimble. It won't go. And so the finite mind cannot grasp the infinite God. Therefore, God is unknowable, so don't spend a lot of time on it. Well, of course, what he was overlooking was that the infinite could accommodate itself to the limitations of the finite and reveal itself, which is precisely what the word became flesh involves. But that's, that's, that's not important. Immanuel Kant also said this, if God is infinite... The only way an infinite God can be adequately expressed in his creation is in an infinite creation. Have you got that? If God is infinite, the only way an infinite God can be adequately expressed in his creation is in an infinite creation. If the universe is infinite, it has no beginning and no end. It is in a solid, static state. So John 1 and Genesis 1 are wrong. Now, what Immanuel Kant didn't realize was that he was opening the door for Charles Darwin. For Charles Darwin came along and he went off to the Galapagos Islands and he looked at all these strange things that were going on there and he developed a theory of, of how we had evolved, etc., etc., over innumerable uh, evolutionary periods, etc., etc. But Kant, you see, had given him an infinite universe. 
And so whilst people would argue with Darwin and say, well, that couldn't possibly happen, he would say, why not? We've got an infinite universe. We've got infinite time. We've got infinite possibilities. Are you saying that in infinity there is no possibility of what I'm predicating? And the answer, of course, is, well, I guess there could be a possibility of it then. Then along came a man who had a bad hair day every day. Poor, poor man. Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, remember, Swiss gentleman, a theoretical physicist, brilliant man. And somehow or other, he figured out the theory of general relativity. (laughs) And uh, among other things, he posited this thing, it was purely theory with him, he posited this thing, that the universe was expanding and was decelerating at the same time. Now, if the universe was expanding and decelerating, what it meant was that some force had set it off, but the force was gradually wearing down. And if that was the case, then you work back and back and back to the original force. And what have you got? A beginning. You've got a beginning. And that is a total shock to all the people who've been buying into Kant. (laughs) And the biggest shock was to Einstein. And Einstein didn't like the idea of a beginning because if he did, if there was a beginning, then he had to begin to posit the possibility of a beginner. And he wasn't ready for a beginner and a beginning. So he said, there must be some undiscovered repulsive force that does not require a beginning. And somebody else came along and said, they found the idea of a repulsive force repulsive. (laughs) Then comes Edwin Hubble. Edwin Hubble of telescope fame. Of course, they didn't have his telescope in those days. Edwin Hubble did some experiments. And you know what he discovered? He discovered that Einstein was right. And he not only discovered that Einstein was right, he was able to set some kind of a ballpark figure for the beginning. The beginning. And now they start looking at the possibility, maybe there was actually a beginning of the universe. Now, some of the people didn't like this idea at all, so they started coming up with various theories. One of the theories is the oscillating theory. Or the... (laughs) Well, let's let's stick with the oscillating theory for a minute. The oscillating theory is this, that it is certainly true that the universe is expanding, but it is decelerating, and eventually it will come to the point where gravity takes over and it will begin to implode. And it will implode until it comes to the point of infinite singularity, at which point it will naturally explode. Until eventually it implodes, and then it will explode, and it will do this infinitely. And so this way they were able to figure out, to their satisfaction, how there could be an expanding universe without the awkward necessity of a beginning. A lot of the argument is still going on in that area at the present time. And then along came Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking is the British physicist, brilliant man, confined to a wheelchair, can't speak, has Lou Gehrig's disease, advanced stages of it, a brilliant brain, theoretical physicist, sits in the chair of Isaac Newton, Cambridge University. And he did some measurements, and he says this, Not only was there a beginning, 
But at the beginning, that was the beginning of the dimensions of length and breadth and height and time. That was the beginning of time. Now, time is the dimension in which cause and effect happens. Time is the dimension in which cause and effect happen. And this is what he's saying. There was a beginning of time. And if there was a beginning of time in which cause and effect happened, that means that the cause was outside time. So not only do we have a beginning, we have a cause before the beginning. Now we're talking eternity. Very interesting at this point, the scientists have gone about as far as they can because they posited a beginning, but they don't know what began the beginning and they don't know where to go. Robert Jastrow, in his book, God and the Astronomers, he is a highly regarded astronomer. He is the founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, professor of astronomy and geology at Columbia University, professor of earth sciences at Dartmouth College, etc., etc., and also a confessed agnostic. This is what he says at the end of his book. Now, we would like to pursue that inquiry further, that is, the inquiry about the beginning. We would like to pursue that inquiry further back in time, but the barrier to further progress seems insurmountable. It is not a matter of another year, another decade of work, another measurement, or another theory. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians. <laughs> he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And he's hit the nail right on the head. Thank God for honest science. Thank God for honest scientists. For all truth is God's truth. And whenever people discover truth, they're discovering something of God's self-revelation. But we do not need people who are scientists moving into the realm of theology because they don't belong there any more than most theologians don't belong in the realm of science. But what we do recognize is this, that the theologians have been saying, one of them, John, well, let me tell you about this. In the beginning, the Word had already been in a state of continuous existence. And he said, I'll tell you something else. And in that state of continuous existence, he was not only eternally existent, he was in an intimate relationship with God. For that is the essence of the little word with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Pros in the Greek. What it means is in an intimate relationship with God. And then he taps the ante a little bit further. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Listen. And the Word was God. And immediately you've got a hint of Trinity. 
For now, he's talking about God and he's talking about an eternal one who is with God for all eternity in an intimate relationship. And then he repeats what he said in verse 1 in verse 2, just the other way around. And then he adds this, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And the word became flesh. If it is true, if it is true that there is one who was eternally existent in intimate relationship with God and when the beginning came into active experience, he was actively engaged in bringing it about and all things were made through his agency. And he, in communion with God, manifests the self, the reality that he himself is deity. If all that is true, why in the world would he become flesh? Or put it in simple terms, why would he lay aside all that obtained in his eternal existence with the Father? And in his control of the universe, why in the world would he lay it down and humble himself to the birth of a child? In the most poor of circumstances, very, very quickly become a refugee and eventually be abused, maltreated, given a mockery of a trial, and then crucified. Why? And it seems to me the answer is this. The whole point of the word is that a word is the means of the expression of a rational idea. And behind the universe there is a God who is invisible and to our finite minds unknowable. Unless he accommodates himself to our finiteness and in a manner that we could understand reveals himself by assuming our humanity and living out his deity in a human body and allowing us to see who God is. And this is what John says in his prologue. He said, the word was made flesh and for a little time he lived among us. Listen, and we beheld his glory. And the word beheld there is we watched him, we studied him, we have come to an absolute, intelligent, informed opinion that he is the outward expression of the invisible God. And you say, so what? And I'll tell you, so what? If you want to know God, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what he promises and what he hates and what he loves what he expects, if you want to know why he made you, if you want to know all these great philosophical questions about God and you, where do you start getting answers? You say, well, I could start speculating. Well, that won't get you very far. I'll tell you a better way to do it. To realize that the word is the expression of a rational idea. And that Jesus came in order that he might show us what God is like. So we don't need to speculate. 
We don't need to guess. Don't need to argue. What we need to do is to make absolutely certain that we are deeply informed about Jesus. For he is the word made flesh. And here's a challenge for you. If you want to de-trivialize Christmas this year, immerse yourself in John's gospel and say, oh God, if Jesus is truly the word, the one who reveals you in all your majesty and glory, show yourself to me. Show me what you like. Show me what you love. Show me what you hate. Show me what you stand for. Show me what you're against. Because I am in such a fog. And I promise you something. You do that, and you'll discover God's Spirit opening your eyes to an understanding of God the like of which you've never had in your life before. There's the challenge. How to de-trivialize Christmas. Oh, by the way, we have had a visitation from outer space. I thought you'd be glad to know. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the things that you have revealed of yourself. You've re- re- you reveal yourself to us in so many ways in creation. And we thank you for honest scientists who have been fascinated by the universe, looking into it. We thank you for those who are humble enough and honest enough to begin to admit that all things point to somebody who brought it all into being a creative dynamic, a governing force. But what so many of them don't see yet is that that which you have created is also an expression of yourself. But we're glad that we're not just stuck with creation because creation is red in tooth and claw as well. And it's ugly and it's mean. And there are hurricanes and there are tornadoes and there are floods And there are earthquakes. There are terrible things happening. We don't understand these things if all we know of you is in the creation. And that's why we thank you that the word was made flesh. In order that there might be in language that we could understand. The language of humanity. A demonstration of the sheer mystery of deity. Help us therefore this Christmas time. Not to be so caught up in much that is beautiful and lovely and legitimate and in all honesty really quite trivial. And help us to grasp and be gripped by this superlative truth that the word became flesh. That we might live in the good of the revelation of the God from whom we come, through whom we live, to whom we're accountable, and that we might respond to who he is. We pray this in Jesus' name. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, this day and henceforth. Amen.